Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, which is the podcast that covers all sorts of fascinating bits and pieces in philosophy, theology, politics, social issues, and anything that manages to distract me from the dank and uneventful dungeon that is my life. I am your host, Glenn Peoples. It has been quite a while since the last episode, and this will quite certainly be the last episode of 2010. New Year's Day 2011 is just a few days away now. This episode, episode 38, is an analysis of the popular on the internet, but not in real life, documentary called Zeitgeist. Now, the movie or documentary, The Zeitgeist, sets out to be a kind of groundbreaking and shocking unveiling of secrets about religion and politics in two separate parts, more specifically about Christianity and then about America in two separate parts. Now, the first part of the documentary is called The Greatest Story Ever Told, and this is the part that has gotten some opponents of Christianity all excited, and that's what this episode will be about. Now, this part starts out with a couple of fairly uncontroversial observations as follows. In ancient cultures, ancient societies, many people adored and even worshipped the sun. Many people also attributed great importance to the stars, and the constellations and the signs of the zodiac are a reflection of this fact, so that, that's true. Not only did many people adore the heavenly bodies, but they also personified them, that is, they attributed personality to them, and they told myths about these, the activities of these beings. The images that we see on the screen in the documentary at this point are largely Egyptian. And then the narrator says this. The sun, with its life-giving and saving qualities, was personified as a representative of the unseen creator or God, God's sun, the light of the world, the savior of humankind. Now already, uh, I think you can guess where this is heading. Listen to the language that the narrator chooses to use here at this point. God's son, the light of the world, and the savior of humankind. Now this is quite obviously biblical terminology that is used of Jesus. And although the narrator doesn't tell you just yet, what he's doing is he's setting the scene so that the biblical Jesus can later be portrayed as a recycled version of all the old sun god myths of Egypt and the Eastern world. So to make sure that we check the facts at every step, let's note a few things at this early stage. The narrator chooses to use the phrase God's son because of the way it sounds. That's son, S-U-N. Now, in, in the English language, the words son, S-U-N, and son, S-O-N, sound the same, but they don't at all sound the same in Egyptian or in any ancient Near Eastern language like Hebrew or Aramaic. They don't sound the same in Greek, Latin, or any ancient language that I know of. So while the English phrase God's son, as in that hot thing there up in the sky that belongs to God, sounds like the phrase God's son, as in the male child of God, the two phrases could not possibly have ever been confused in any of these ancient languages. For example, in Egypt, the son was called Aten, but the Egyptian word meaning son, that is someone's child, was called Sa. 
Okay, they don't sound at all the same. In Hebrew, the word for the sun, you know, the, the hot thing up in the sky is Shemesh. But the word for somebody's son is Ben. Okay, no similarity whatsoever. In Greek, the word for the son is Helios. But the word for somebody's son, you know, the, their boy is Huios. Now, there's some similarity there. Um, in the big scheme of things, I consider that a coincidence. So this first ploy to get the listener to associate the sun up there in the sky with the phrase God's son or son of God, S-O-N, is not just misleading. It's, it's so naive, it's almost juvenile. Not only that, but as far as I can tell, in no place in ancient Egyptian writing, although I admit to being no expert in Egyptology, is the sun god referred to as the light of the world or the savior of humanity. What the narrator is doing here is setting the scene by trying to get the listener to make some unwarranted associations. You know, not, not arguments, just instinctive associations that require no real thought. Very early on in the presentation, he's taking much later Christian phrases and deliberately using them of other religious movements that came much earlier so that when he later discusses Christianity, the listener will be able to say, hey, wait a minute, didn't we hear that same language being used earlier to describe other religious figures? Maybe the Christians really did copy the idea. So it's more psychological than rational. So things aren't, I think, off to a very promising start. Next, the narrator introduces the Egyptian myth of Horus, the sun god, he actually makes up his own phrase here and calls Horus the solar messiah. But the Egyptians didn't use the term messiah or anointed one. That's what Christ or messiah means when they described Horus. That's actually, unfortunately, another trick being used by the narrator to get you to, without thinking about it, associate Christian language with ancient myths that predate Christianity. So he wasn't called the messiah. The, the you know, Egyptians didn't use that term. But here comes the important part. Listen to the way that the narrator of Zeitgeist describes the myth of Horus. Broadly speaking, the story of Horus is as follows. Horus was born on December 25th of the Virgin Isis, Mary. His birth was accompanied by a star in the east, and upon his birth he was adored by three kings. At the age of 12 he was a prodigal child teacher, and at the age of 30 he was baptized by a figure known as Anup, and thus began his ministry. Horus had 12 disciples he traveled about with, performing miracles such as healing the sick and walking on water. Horus was known by many gestural names such as the Truth, the Light, God's Anointed Son, the Good Shepherd, the Lamb of God, and many others. After being betrayed by Typhon, Horus was crucified, buried for three days, and thus resurrected. Sounds pretty amazing, right? Well, here's the problem. It's just not true. In brief, first... Isis is not called Isis Mary. The name Mary was just thrown in there to make it sound more like the story of Jesus. The phrase Isis Mary is not her name. It's a statement that means something like that Isis was loved. And it doesn't sound like the name of Jesus' mother Mary, which is actually Miriam in Hebrew. So again, this is just an absurd reliance on the way that English names sound. The Hor Horus mythology does not include a virgin birth. Isis becomes pregnant to her husband, Osiris. What's more, none of the ancient sources indicate that Horus was supposed to have been born on the 25th of December. Not one. 
And for that matter, none of the ancient sources indicate that Jesus was supposed to have been born on the 25th of December either. The narrator doesn't state where he got his information from, I wonder why, but it's all wrong. I suspect that maybe some of it has trickled down via the internet where it's popular, from a book that was written back in 1907 by Gerald Massey called Ancient Egypt and the Light of the World, which is when a number of these theories were first invented. Horus is never said in the mythology to have had 12 disciples. There's no reference to Horus being baptized or being crucified. He did lose an eye in battle, but that's hardly the same thing. He is said to have died by being chained to a great spike, and then he was attacked and killed while he was helpless and slain before the gods not crucified, and he was never raised to life in the Horus myth. As for terminology, same story here too. Horus was never called the Lamb of God or the Bread of Life. This whole rewritten story of Horus has just been fabricated and presented to an audience that isn't going to know any better. Because let's face it, if you really want to know about ancient Egyptology, you go to university and learn about ancient Egyptology. You don't watch you know, the zeitgeist to learn about Egypt. Without consulting or presenting the testimony of one single historian, the narrator then rushes really fast through a whole list of ancient myths about various gods and makes similar claims. He says that Attis of Asia Minor was said to have been crucified and then raised after three days. But in fact, in the Attis myth, Attis was never crucified. He castrated himself and died. And the only reference to his resurrection was written much later, after AD 150, more than a century after Christianity had begun to spread. So if there was any copying going on, it was, it was the other way around. You know, the Atismith was being morphed into something that resembled the Christian story. Next to be mentioned is Krishna, who is said to be born of a virgin and then resurrected from the dead after he was killed. But Krishna's mother... Devaki, according to the story, had already already had eight children to her husband. There's no virgin birth going on here. And as for being resurrected, no. The closest parallel in the stories about Krishna comes in some later versions of the tale in which Krishna's body turned into a log, or a log-like image at least, which floated around the east coast of India, finally ending up in a temple in the town of Puri, Needless to say, it's not quite resur- <laughs> resurrection. No version of the story contains a death and resurrection account. Again, the makers of Zeitgeist are just making up facts as they go, or else they're relying on some pretty dubious sources without checking the facts themselves. The narrator just keeps on rattling off names. He lists other gods, Dionysius, Mithra, who I actually wrote a blog about called Mary Mithra. But in each case, the story is the same. There was never a version of the story in question that contained the essential elements that the, that the narrator is referring to in the life of Jesus. These are rewritten, fabricated versions of the myths that have been meddled with just to look more like the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, for no other purpose than to claim that the gospel accounts of Jesus look like these older myths. Well, the older myths never look like that. If you've watched the Zeitgeist movie, and you found this section compelling, look, ask yourself, honestly, as the narrator was confidently telling you about the stories of these mythical characters, how many ancient historians did he interview? How many did he quote? 
How many of the claims did he back up by actually quoting from the original stories themselves? How many experts in classical studies did he refer to? Which resources did he offer you for further study? You already know the answer. Absolutely none. Not one, ever. And yet, there are people in the world who claim to have done research or to have discovered groundbreaking information that debunks the Christian faith solely on the basis of the fact that they have seen this documentary and its claims about how the Jesus story is just a warmed-over version of ancient mythology. It's a case of the blind leading the blind. People who think that they've checked the facts because they've listened to the claims of others who haven't checked the facts. Listen to how the narrator now introduces the story of Jesus. Bear in mind, the, the narrator has already incorrectly claimed that these mythological figures were born of a virgin, visited by three wise men, baptized, they began their ministry, had twelve disciples, were called the Lamb of God and the Son of God, and so on. They were crucified, and then they were resurrected three days later. He's falsely claimed that about all these other figures in ancient mythology. But then comes this. The fact of the matter is, there are numerous saviors from different periods from all over the world which subscribe to these general characteristics. The question remains, why these attributes? Why the virgin birth on December 25th? Why dead for three days in the inevitable resurrection? Why twelve disciples or followers? To find out, let's examine the most recent of the solar messiahs. Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary on December 25th in Bethlehem. His birth was announced by a star in the east, which three kings or magi followed to locate and adorn the new savior. He was a child teacher at 12, and at the age of 30 he was baptized by John the Baptist, and thus began his ministry. Jesus had 12 disciples which he traveled about with, performing miracles such as healing the sick, walking on water, raising the dead. He was also known as the King of Kings, the Son of God, the Light of the World, the Alpha and Omega, the Lamb of God, and many, many others. After being betrayed by his disciple Judas and sold for 30 pieces of silver, he was crucified, placed in a tomb, and after three days was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Now this is the point where I guess the makers of this documentary are hoping, desperately hoping that a somewhat ignorant and gullible audience will be sitting there and a light bulb will go off above their head and they'll say, hey, wait a minute, that's just like all the stories of all those other gods who aren't real. Now, as for the reference to Solar Messiah, remember, the figures in those ancient myths were not called the Messiah. So it, it's, it's illegitimate to say the most recent Solar Messiah, the, you know, there were no other Solar Messiahs, and although Jesus is called the Messiah, he was never associated with the sun. The New Testament doesn't do that. This is just one long string of fictional associations. What's more, the narrator didn't even get the life of Jesus right. You'd think he could have read the New Testament before making this documentary. The New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus never say that he was born on the 25th of December, not once. They also don't say that he was visited by three kings. And so it sounds to me like the makers of the zeitgeist have confused Christmas carols and the history of Christmas stories with the Gospels themselves. Then the narrator brings it all together, explaining why all these religions exhibit the same, according to him, characteristics. The reason, he says, is astrological. It has to do with the stars, he explains. 
The star in the east is Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky, which, on December 24th, aligns with the three brightest stars in Orion's belt. These three bright stars in Orion's belt are called today what they were called in ancient times, the Three Kings. And the Three Kings and the brightest star, Sirius, all point to the place of the sunrise on December 25th. This is why the Three Kings follow the star in the east, in order to locate the sunrise the birth of the sun. Now, I think the audience is supposed to be somewhat amazed by this, and maybe some people will be, unless they know anything about astronomy. This is not terribly complicated. The narrator says that Sirius is the brightest star in the night sky, which on December 24th aligns with the three brightest stars in Orion's belt, thereby singling out December 24th as astrologically significant. Stop and think. Does the star map change over the course of the year? I mean, sure, sometimes the whole thing will be off to the east or to the west or whatever because the earth rotates and because of the seasonal changes in the earth's position, you know, as it goes around the sun. But relative to each other, does the position of individual stars change as you look up to the night sky? Of course not. I mean, that's elementary. Think about it. Orion is in the shape of Orion all year round, right? The stars that map out the shape are always in the same place relative to each other from an Earth perspective. And so, of course, Sirius is no different. It does line up very roughly with the stars in Orion's belt, but it always lines up with them. 365 days a year, 366 in a leap year, is nothing significant about December 24th here. I mean, that's just crazy. You'd have to not know anything about the stars in order to make a comment like that, except for the fact that those four stars line up. There's the first astronomical blunder. And here's the second. There is no ancient record, none, anywhere, suggesting that the stars that make up Orion's belt were known as the Three Kings. The first such reference that I've been able to find appears in the 17th century, and it's a Christian reference based on the tradition of three kings visiting Jesus. Now, I said earlier the New Testament doesn't say that. No, it doesn't. But a traditional Christmas story of three kings visiting Jesus was developed, and those three stars were named after that story. Okay, so that's the second blunder. The third issue is that there's no one point to which this line of four stars leads, you know, the three stars in Orion's belt and Sirius making four stars in a line. The point on the horizon to which those, that line leads moves over the course of the night, obviously. I mean, just think about that. The earth rotates, right? In Bethlehem, these stars aren't even visible until the evening. Now, not, not because of the daylight. I mean, because of the horizon. They haven't even come up yet. But from that time in the evening when they appear, that line is not pointing to where the sun will rise. And from that time to just five hours later, a relatively short time, the point where that line touches the horizon has swept by at least a full 30 degrees. So this is insignificant in astronomical terms. There is no point on the horizon identified by those stars. The other issue is significance. The issue of significance. Even if history were different, and those stars in Orion's belt had been called the Three Kings, why does that matter? 
Jesus wasn't said to have been visited by three kings in the New Testament, but by an unnumbered group of wise men. It could have been 20. They probably traveled in a caravan. You know, there were three gifts mentioned, but not three wise men and not three kings. For that matter, the myths that the narrator refers to doesn't have three visiting kings either. You know, the ancient myths that he tries to compare to the gospel account. So apart from getting an F in astronomy, astronomy, the main response to the Zeitgeist movie at this point is, so what? And again, the narrator appeals to the silly line of argument about the birth of the sun. When he says birth of the sun, we see an on-screen painting of the birth of Jesus, the sun, S-O-N. I mean, this is just daft. But again, there's no significance about the fact that those words sound the same in English. I feel silly pointing this out to you, but English did not even exist when the New Testament was written. The Virgin Mary, the narrator says, is linked to the constellation Virgo. Virgo is sometimes called, he says, the house of bread. That's his phrase. He claims that this is the case. Now, as you may know, Bethlehem is a Hebrew name. It's the name of the place where Jesus was born according to the New Testament, and it's a word that means house of bread. Bethlehem, then, is an allegory for the constellation Virgo, the narrator says. Well, that's pretty significant, right? Well, it's hard to tell, because in order to be significant, it would first have to be true, (laughs) and it's not. There isn't a single source anywhere in astrology or astronomy that indicates that Virgo has ever been called the house of bread. In fact, Mary isn't even from Bethlehem. Joseph is. That's why Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem to register for the census in Joseph's hometown. The documentary tries to make other parallels between astrology and all these religions with their solar messiahs, so-called, as well. Remember how the narrator claimed that dozens of other ancient religions portrayed their their Messiah as dying, in fact being crucified, he specified, and then rising three days later. Well, that's astrology too, he says. He says that in December at the winter solstice, the sun resides in the region of the southern cross, the constellation called Crux. He then goes on, listen to what he says. There's another very interesting phenomenon that occurs around December 25th or the winter solstice. From the summer solstice to the winter solstice, the days become shorter and colder. And from the perspective of the northern hemisphere, the sun appears to move south and get smaller and more scarce. The shortening of the days and the expiration of the crops when approaching the winter solstice symbolize the process of death to the ancients. It was the death of the sun. And by December 22nd, the sun's demise was fully realized. For the sun, having moved south continually for six months, makes it to its lowest point in the sky. Here a curious thing occurs. The sun stops moving south, at least perceivably, for three days. And during this three-day pause, the sun resides in the vicinity of the Southern Cross, or Crux, constellation. And after this time, on December 25th, the sun moves one degree, this time north, foreshadowing longer days, warmth, and spring. And thus it was said, the sun died on the cross, was dead for three days, only to be resurrected or born again. Now, I realize that it's difficult 
to demonstrate this via a podcast because I'm you know, kind of a floating voice on your computer without anything I can show you. But what I'll do is I'll put a link in the show notes over at the blog so that you can see some pictures that illustrate this. The line that marks the path of the sun through the sky as it travels from east to west is called the ecliptic. Okay. Now, since Jerusalem is obviously in the northern hemisphere, Crux, or the Southern Cross, is barely visible at all, as it just kind of peeps over the horizon. The reality is, the sun's ecliptic never passes through it. Again, I'll post you a link so that you can see the images for yourself, but this claim about astronomy just has no factual foundation whatsoever. However, in the Zeitgeist movie at this point, the viewer is shown an image of the sun positioned exactly over the constellation crux, like it's being crucified on the thing. I mean, this is science fiction. And you'll notice again that the, that the narrator has an incredible reliance on the English language. He says, and thus it was said, the sun died on a cross, dead for three days, only to be resurrected. Well, it's not said, actually, if by sun you mean S-U-N. It's never said. And if you mean S-O-N, then this is just silly. Um, they sound the same in English, but again, they didn't sound the same in the original languages when the New Testament was written, or when the Egyptian hieroglyphics were written, or any other ancient language you care to mention. So it's a wordplay that only made sense centuries later. Now the narrator closes this point by saying, This is why Jesus and numerous other sun gods share the crucifixion, three-day death and resurrection concept this is why, he says. So the whole rationale of this foray into astronomy and astrology, although it was, was completely factually messed up, he got it all wrong, but the whole reason for it was to use this account of astronomical facts as an explanation for all of these religious saviors sharing these themes in common. You know, the three kings uh, being crucified, rising three days later, December 25th, but apart from the astronomical mistakes, the mistake is theological and historical as well. These features don't appear across all these different religions at all. So we've got a false view of astronomy stitched together to provide an, provide an explanation for a, a historical religious phenomenon that doesn't even exist. You know, it's not often you can say this and be literally correct, but the analysis of religion offered in the zeitgeist is an astronomical failure. The next claim that the narrator moves on to is that the most obvious astrological element in the story of Jesus is the fact that he had 12 disciples, because, as you know, there are 12 signs of the zodiac. While making this claim, the narrator says this. Coming back to the cross of the zodiac, the figurative life of the sun, this was not just an artistic expression or tool to track the sun's movement. It was also a pagan spiritual symbol, the shorthand of which looked like this. This is not a symbol of Christianity. It is a pagan adaptation of the cross of the zodiac. At this point, he's showing us a picture of the zodiac chart, which is a circular chart. It's basically a big compass. And it has a picture of the sun at the center and the constellations around the outside, surrounding the sun. And the whole circular chart is divided into quarters with a line straight down the middle and a line straight across the middle. 
the result is two intersecting lines right in the middle of the circle and a small circle in the middle, which is the sun, surrounding the point where the lines cross, if you can visualize that. When the narrator claims that the cross of the zodiac is sometimes shown in shorthand like this, he shows us a picture of that sun in the middle of the chart and part of those two lines cut off at just the right places. He chose where to cut them off, by the way, so that the remaining drawing looks just like a Celtic cross or the picture on the cover of the awesome Black Sabbath album, Headless Cross. One of those crosses you might see you know, in, in, a, in a cemetery with a circle in the middle, a cross in the shape of a crucifix with a circle just around the point where the two lines meet. He then says that this is not a Christian symbol, it's a pagan spiritual symbol, the suggestion being that this is just another element of paganism reappearing in Christian uh, belief and practice, you know, just, just like all those other elements, you know, the ones that don't really exist. But here's the problem. There is no such thing as the cross of the zodiac. He uses that term like it's one used in astrology or maybe even astronomy, but it's not. The reality is that the zodiac compass is a circle with a cross in the middle, or two lines in the middle, not a cross with a circle in it. Do a Google search. I know that's notoriously unreliable, but just, just try it, and you'll find the following. The phrase cross of the zodiac is used usually at websites that feature a discussion of, guess what, the Zeitgeist movie. To be fair, I did find a couple of instances where that phrase was used independently of this movie, and the source provided the picture of a cross, but not the abbreviated version that the Zeitgeist invented, which looks coincidentally like a traditional Christian symbol. The ones that I was able to locate that used the phrase uh, cross of the zodiac showed the two intersecting lines as they actually look on the zodiac chart, two lines of equal length, looking like a great big plus sign, and for the arms of the cross, you've got three squares or blocks, three squares per arm. So there are four arms, 12 squares. And each, it's blank in the right in the center, there's nothing there. And each square featured a symbol of the zodiac. The point is, it looked nothing like a Christian cross. And then to truly destroy any hope of making a profound point, the author shows us a number of old mosaics and carvings of Jesus with the circle of light around his head, as was common for pictures of Jesus and holy people, and a cross in that circle. And he says, This is why Jesus in early occult art is always shown with his head on the cross, for Jesus is the Son, the Son of God. Now, you'd be forgiven for starting to groan at this point. It's so painful it's becoming tiresome. The sun, S-U-N, on the zodiac chart, has two intersecting lines going through it. And so Jesus has those lines behind his head because he too is the sun, S-O-N. I mean, this person, try to be respectful as, as much as I can be, whatever this guy's name is, needs a simple education on the history of the English language. It did not exist, nor did the similarity between those two words. This is so naive, it is laughable. It would be a pretty time-consuming ordeal to press pause every time the, the Zeitgeist documentary screws up yet another thing to explain how badly it got it wrong. So I'm not going to do that. You know, I, I value the time that God has given me. I'm not going to waste it 
I hope you can see the general pattern of just ignorance and falsehood. And so I'm going to look at just two more things before I draw to a close in my discussion of this movie. As a kind of summary statement on what the New Testament story of Jesus really is, the narrator says that it's a kind of mishmash of themes from astrology and other religions like so. The Bible is nothing more than an astrotheological literary hybrid, just like nearly all religious myths before it. In fact, the aspect of transference of one character's attributes to a new character can be found within the book itself. In the Old Testament, there is the story of Joseph. Joseph was a prototype for Jesus. Joseph was born of a miracle birth. Jesus was born of a miracle birth. Joseph was of 12 brothers. Jesus had 12 disciples. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Brother Judah suggests the sale of Joseph. Disciple Judas suggests the sale of Jesus. Joseph began his work at the age of 30. Jesus began his work at the age of 30. The parallels go on and on. Now, firstly, the claim about Jesus being a hybrid made up from bits of astrology like all those other religions is by now a claim that's in tatters, absolutely. But secondly, this stuff about Joseph is something of an amusing phenomenon that I see every now and then. Somebody skeptical of the Christian faith picks up some fact that Christians are very well aware of, and then he waves it around saying, aha, I bet you never noticed this before. It kind of reminds me of when Bart Ehrman, someone who incidentally has considerably more credibility, however wrong I might think he is, than this documentary, but it reminds me of when he uh, started writing sensationalist books that basically said, ooh, did you know about these things called textual variants? The New Testament is full of them. And, you know, the appropriate response was, yes, we did, thank you very much, and they don't pose any problem. The parallels between Joseph, the son of Jacob, and Jesus are obvious, and they're very well known to Christians. The Zeitgeist movie is pretty late coming to the party on this one. The narrator is pretty vague about why he is noting the parallels, but the intent seems to be to get the reader to conclude that since there are key similarities between the life of Jesus and the life of Joseph in the written Bible, at least one of them must be a fictional character, or both. Once you realize that this is what's being said, and I'm assuming this is what's being said, you you just have to wonder, why would anyone conclude this? Why should this be seen as a problem at all? Christians have always believed that there are foreshadows of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, of course, if, say, you're an atheist, and you're already committed to rejecting the possibility of God's work in history, or to the rejection of a historic Christ, maybe you're a Christ myth theorist and you just won't even consider the possibility, then yes, you will explain any parallels in terms of intentional fiction writing. But if you're already committed to rejecting these things, then the movie's kind of preaching to the converted, isn't it? And lastly, almost incredibly, amazingly, the narrator finally decides to actually bring up something relevant right at the end when it comes to assessing the historicity of Jesus. Better late than never, I suppose. He always brings it up as an aside. He decides to bring up the question of how many historical writers actually referred to Jesus. Here's his take. 
Furthermore, is there any non-biblical historical evidence of any person living with the name Jesus, the son of Mary, who traveled about with 12 followers, healing people and the like? There are numerous historians who lived in and around the Mediterranean either during or soon after the assumed life of Jesus. How many of these historians document this figure? Not one. However, to be fair, that doesn't mean defenders of the historical Jesus haven't claimed the contrary. Four historians are typically referenced to justify Jesus' existence. Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, and Tacitus are the first three. Each one of their entries consists of only a few sentences at best, and only referred to Christus or the Christ, which in fact is not a name but a title. It means the Anointed One. The fourth source is Josephus, and this source has been proven to be a forgery for hundreds of years. Sadly, it is still cited as truth. There are actually a few things to say here, but I have to say that the effort that the narrator puts into this careless denial makes it barely worth replying at all. I could put in the same amount of effort. I could just say, what do you mean? What about all the sources that people have referred to as examples of non-Christian writers referring to Jesus? The narrator doesn't actually address them. He pretends that they don't really exist. The next thing I'd say has to do with methodology. There's this very naive view at work here that seems to think that the Bible, as the Bible, a book, one book, was written in the first century, and it existed as a book, as one source in the first century, and that the contributors to the Bible referred to Jesus, but outsiders didn't. Now, this is just absurd. There was no Bible in the first century. There were a bunch of people living in the first century who came to follow Jesus, and some of them wrote about him. Some of those writings were later collected, centuries later, collected into what we now call the New Testament. So it's pretty unfair, and actually just a little bit confused, actually, maybe a lot confused, to complain that there are no non-biblical or non-Christian historians who confirm the existence of of this miracle worker who rose from the dead, anyone who recorded that would be deemed by skeptics to be a Christian source. And they would be excluded from the inquiry, wouldn't they? Because they're biased. They're not secular. So the writings of early followers of Jesus seem to me to be just the kind of writings we would expect. And those are the kinds of writings that we have, which were later gathered into the Bible. What's more, the narrator has this bizarre view that if Jesus were a historical figure, then all or most of the major historians in that part of the world at the time would have known all about him. But the fact is, it's very unlikely that any of them would have known about him until the Christian movement began to become historically significant. That is, it's not like they had video phones and YouTube in first century Palestine. And Jesus was certainly no televangelist. He was this guy who went walking around with his small group of followers, who became much more significant after the movement that he founded began to grow. But let me finish up by saying a few things about the historical evidence, other than the evidence preserved in the Christian community. I've commented on this before at some length on my blog, so I'm going to be very brief here, and what I'll do is I'll add links to a series that I did on this a while back at the blog, so you can read more if you're interested. 
The historical sources can be grouped into two sections. First of all, you've got what you might call minor sources or sources of very little or minimal historical value. And then you've got sources of considerable value. Okay, that's a pretty simple division. Bear in mind, these are not Christian sources. That is, they aren't writers who were persuaded that the Christian message about Jesus was true. So obviously they're not going to confirm, say, the resurrection of Jesus. Because if you came to believe that that was a historical reality, then you'd be a Christian, probably. But they do confirm, at very least, the existence of the historical Jesus and at least a few minimal facts about him or his life. So let's start with sources that everyone admits are of minimal value. So I'm going to be brief. Thallus was a first century historian to whom later writers, in particular the Christian Julius, referred. Now Thallus rejected the claim about why the sun went dark when Jesus died. And he said that it was actually an eclipse. And Julius, in responding to him, denies this. Okay, But in order for the first century historian Thallus to have rejected one explanation, it's likely that he accepted that the events took place. He simply explained them differently. Okay, Minor source, I've offered only a brief comment. Then we have Mara Bar Sepion. Mara Bar Sepion, a Jewish man writing to his son in prison. He refers to the fact that the Jews had a person called, who was called their wise king who was executed and that their kingdom was then taken away. Okay, now that's, you know, in the first century there was a person who was referred to as the king of the Jews who was executed and then shortly afterwards the kingdom was taken away from Israel when Rome sacked Jerusalem. Now, what reduces the value of this source is that its date is just not very clear. It could be as early as the late first century, but the window of time may be as wide as 140 years. So it could be towards the end of the second, beginning of the third century. So it's a source of, of minimal value. Next, we have Pliny the Younger, as the narrator acknowledged. But the narrator misled you by implying that everything hangs on the use of one word, Christ. But there's actually more to it than that. At the outset of the first century, Pliny wrote to the emperor about the Christians. While he was explaining what it was that the Christians did, he noted that they offered up prayers and songs to Christus, which is Christ, quote, as if he were a god. Now that's the significant part. The impression is that he knew there was a person referred to as Christus, but the Christians treated him as though he were actually something more, as though he were a god. Next, there is Suetonius, another source of rather minimal value. But again, the point is not just that he refers to Christ. He writes that the Jews were expelled from Rome in AD 49 because of the disturbances that were created because of the instigator, Christus. Actually, the name he wrote was Christus, but it's widely accepted, even by the narrator of the Zeitgeist movie, apparently, that this was intended as a reference to Christus. Now, this expulsion is actually recorded as taking place at this time in the book of Acts in the New Testament because of the preaching about Jesus. But Suetonius doesn't just say that it was the preaching about 
or that it was Christus who caused it. He said it was the instigator, Christus. If he was an instigator, then he had to have been an actual historical person to begin with. So Suetonius' comments are more relevant than this movie assumes. Now in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over two more second century sources of very minimal value, Celsus and Lucian of Samosata, but you can see what I've said about them at the blog. I'll move on to sources that have significantly more value. Tacitus was a highly regarded Roman historian with access to the best official historical records that Rome had to offer. The narrator brushes him off by saying that he only used the word Christ, but the fact is, the reason Tacitus used the word Christ was to explain why the Christian movement had that name, why it was called the Christian movement. In the very early 2nd century, Tacitus wrote, and I quote, Christus, the source of this name, was executed during the reign of Tiberius by the sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And the destructive superstition was suppressed only to break out in the present, not only in Judea, the source of this evil, but also in the city of Rome where all hateful and shameful things flow and find a following. End quote. So the significance is not diminished by the fact that Tacitus uses the term Christ. What he shows us is that historians may affirm that there was a person referred to as Christ in the first century from whom the Christian movement took its name, that this person was executed under Pontius Pilate in Judea. In Judea, that's, that's important as well. These are all historical details and that the Christian movement has spread since then all the way to Rome. Now, obviously, this doesn't refer to some astrological figure, but to a real flesh-and-blood historical man. Lastly, we come to the most important Jewish historian of the ancient world, Flavius Josephus. The narrator hastily and lazily says, it's just a forgery and that's that, and there's nothing to see here, move away, you know, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. If the quality of scholarship behind the Zeitgeist movie is anything to go by, I would frankly be amazed if he's even read about the quality of Josephus as an ancient historical source on Jesus, beyond maybe reading a claim made by a fellow skeptic at some blog or internet message board. There are two passages in Josephus that are of interest here. Both of them appear in his major work, The Antiquities. The first reference is, well, actually, it's the second, but it's the first one that I'll mention because it's short. It appears in Book 20. There, Josephus noted in passing that a person who had been brought before the Sanhedrin was, quote, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James. It's not much, of course, but it establishes that there is a there was a person named Jesus, uses the name Jesus, who was called the Christ, Obviously, Josephus didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, but he noted that he was called the Christ and who was the brother of James. Sound familiar? You see, according to the New Testament, Jesus was called the Christ and he did have a brother named James. When the narrator of the Zeitgeist movie says that the passage in Josephus is a forgery, he's referring to a different passage in Josephus, uh, an earlier passage a longer one that has become known as the Testimonium Flavianum, or the Testimony of Flavius, Flavius Josephus. I don't presume that I can cover the evidence here, because I do mean to be quick. Not that the Zeitgeist movie looked at any evidence at all. 
So I do recommend checking out the links that I'll provide, but I'll say a couple of things about this. Here is the contested version of the statement from Josephus in Antiquities, book 18, and I quote, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds, a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. And he drew over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had at first come to love him did not cease, for he appeared to them again, spending a third day restored to life, the divine prophets having foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. End quote. Now you can see straight away all the signs that this passage is very suspicious. Number one, you've got a non-Christian writer accepting that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was raised from the dead, and that he probably wasn't even a man, referring to his deity as God. Now, since we know that Josephus never embraced Christianity, that's kind of a dead giveaway that something's wrong here. Secondly, if this passage were genuine in this form, then why did the early Christian writers never make use of it? Now, that's not a knockdown argument against the authenticity, I know, but it would be surprising if no Christian writer of antiquity made use of this work of history if they had the opportunity to do so. However, contrary to what the narrator of the Zeitgeist and other skeptics say, there's no good evidence, no good evidence, that this passage was simply made up out of nothing by later Christians and then inserted into Josephus' work. The actual evidence suggests that Josephus did refer to Jesus and that unfortunately the passage was tampered with in the copying process by somebody who wanted to make this description of Jesus more impressive and, well, more Christian. If you take out the claims that Jesus was the Messiah, that he might not have been a man at all and that he rose from the dead, you end up with a passage that a first century Jewish writer could easily have written. What's more, in the 1970s, a 10th century Arabic translation of this work of Josephus was discovered. It was written in the 10th century, but it obviously drew on copies that were significantly older. What it shows us is that is a version of the translation, so a translation tradition of Josephus' work that never fell into the hands of whoever was responsible for meddling with this passage. And guess what? The passage is still there. It still refers to Jesus, but it lacks the claims about him being the Messiah, rising from the dead, and being not just a man. So yes, there was a forgery involved here in the later versions that we have with these editions, but even without that forgery, Josephus is still a first century historian who confirmed the existence of Jesus, a man said to work miracles and who was crucified, but who was the historical founder of the Christian religion. But then, in order for the narrator of the Zeitgeist movie to have known this, he would have had to check the facts. And this is clearly something that has little or no importance to him. That's where I'm going to stop. At, after this point, the documentary goes off in other directions, claiming that the 9-11 terrorist attacks in the United States were really an inside government job, that America is only in, a, in Iraq to get the oil, that they only ever go to war for fiscal gain, that we're headed for a one-world government, yada, yada, put your tinfoil hats on now, and so on and so forth. 
I'm not interested in that because for some reason, not that many people believe it. But for some other reason, when it comes to Christianity, well, then all of a sudden it's useful to be credulous and to accept that this guy must know what he's talking about. A natural question that I was asked just today, actually, is given that the Zeitgeist movie is such obvious rubbish, and it, it really is by anybody's standard, why am I even spending my time addressing it? Well, the truth is, I've been asked to do this on more than one occasion by people who have met enthusiastic fans of the movie who think that it's some amazing expose that everybody needs to see. Now, in spite of what you've heard today in this episode, there are people walking around out there who have been impressed by this documentary and who believe that it represents a credible challenge to the Christian faith. Now, my summary is, I have to say, it literally amazes me that even though it got no mainstream attention, the Zeitgeist movie actually managed to cause a bit of a stir, on the internet at least. It represents, without any doubt, the least factually grounded attempt to undermine the historical basis of the Christian faith that I have ever seen, period. It is completely wrong about other ancient religions and what they taught. It is completely wrong about astronomy. It bases innuendo about similar words in ancient cultures on the similarity of modern English words. It gets astrology and astrological symbols wrong. It plays on the ignorance of the audience when it comes to parallels between biblical figures, and it tops everything off by simply ignoring the evidence altogether when it comes to historical references to Jesus. In short, every single time this documentary makes an interesting-sounding claim about anything, that claim turns out to be false. Now, that's a pretty amazing thing to be able to say about what is supposed to be a factual documentary, but it's true. And of course, what's really ironic about the internet-based popularity of this documentary is that those who have watched it and then started repeating its bogus claims on message boards and blogs everywhere are typically the same people who call themselves skeptics or rationalists, who then presume to see their efforts as part of the tidal wave of reason and evidence that ultimately undermines fictional nonsense like Christianity. I mean, the the irony is painful. And on that painful note, another episode of Say Hello to My Little Friend, episode 38, draws to a close. It has been a bit of a long one, I suppose, but when you're dealing with a subject like Zeitgeist, there's a lot of nonsense that needs to be dispelled. And hopefully I've gone some way to doing that for you. I'm not really sure what the next episode will be about, although, of course, I'm always open to suggestions, but until that time, this is your host, Glenn Peoples, saying adieu for another episode of...